This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Professor Elizabeth Bridges. In this conversation, we talk about her time growing up as a PK in a Southern Baptist church, what led her to never again returning to that type of church, as well as some other adventures in other forms of Christianity, such as Methodism and Episcopalianism, and uh, why she even ran into issues with seeing how the sausage is made, so to speak, and other traditions like Zen Buddhism. We also talk a bit about her sexuality as well as ways in which to sort of deal with anger towards church and Christianity and the sizable divide between progressive mainline Christianity and fundamentalist traditions like evangelicalism. As you can tell, um, I'm not recording this in my office, this particular intro at least. I am actually recording this in my car, um, but this is the best way for me to get this episode to you. Um, As always, just a a few final things. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and follow the show on Twitter at ExvangelicalPod. You can also search for Exvangelical on Facebook uh, to join the private group. Just search for the name Exvangelical and it should come up. And finally, um, if you want to support the show via Patreon, you may do so at patreon.com slash Pod. A big thank you to all of those uh, loyal Patreon supporters. Thank you very much. Couldn't do the show without you. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes so more people can find the show. All right, let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Professor Elizabeth Bridges. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Uh, let's so let's start sort of where we always do on the show, which is just learning a little bit about you and and where you're from. Sure. Um, well, I was born in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, my dad was the pastor of the First Baptist Church there. Uh, Bentonville was not the name uh, then that it is now. You know, it's the home of Walmart. But um, I think the store went public just that year. Uh, or maybe not even yet. And so um, it was just still considered like this local store or whatever, that there were a few others around. Um, And so, uh, you know, it it was not the known place that it is now. It was just a sleepy little town, more or less, in the Ozarks in Arkansas. And um, we moved from there when I was five uh, to another town in northeast Arkansas across the state. Um, Near, uh, if you know where, I don't know, probably no one knows where any of these places are anyway, but um, but near Jonesboro, Arkansas, in the northeast corner of the state, kind of about two hours from Memphis. And he was, again, pastor of the First Baptist Church there. And so that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of where I came from. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, I know that's sort of like a. I come from small town Indiana, and so like okay, <laughs> so like think being from a place no one knows. <laughs> I sort of, I, okay, I, yeah, yeah, I sort of I identify with that for sure. Um, so, is there any sort of distinguishable difference between like First Baptist Church and uh, and either Southern Baptists or any of the other sort of denominations of oh well, Baptist, I mean, Baptist denominations, I guess. <laughs> Um, well, First Baptist was just the name of the church. I mean, they were both SBC. They were both Southern Baptist. Oh, okay. Uh, my dad, my dad was educated at Southern Baptist Seminary in uh, in Louisville, and has remained a Southern Baptist pastor until uh, just a few months ago when he retired. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure whether that was a, a local name or whether whether that's a total yeah it was i guess they were the first baptist churches that were started in the town i don't know or they considered themselves the best i don't know but anyway <laughs> yeah yeah it just so happened they were both that <laughs> so what was it like um being a pk in in small towns and in that sort of environment well i know i don't remember much about it when we were in bentonville i more remember it when we got to um Paragould, which is the name of the town which again it was like I don't know, nine to 12,000 people somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when I was a little kid uh, in Bentonville, I, I don't remember thinking that much about it really. Just like church was just a part of my life. It was never something I really thought much about. Um, one day when, um, you know, at the end of the service, there's the altar call or whatever. And so my dad was standing up there and for whatever reason, I just was like, hey, I wanna go hang out with my dad. And so I walked up there and then everybody thought I had like, you know, gotten saved or whatever at age five. And, um, and I, so I had to kind of play along, which was really messed up. <laughs> and so I just, I just went along with it because I didn't want to disappoint people. And, um, and so that was my, uh, official initiation, I guess, sort of, um, but I later told my dad that I really had just kind of played along with that. And so I got saved again at Bible school a couple of years later <laughs> um, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. The, I, the whole like going up to the front of the church and the getting dunked and all that. And so um, and so I did that twice, actually. And okay. I guess the second time was the real time. I don't know. <laughs> was any of it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh uh, that's that's not an uncommon thing, you know, to to have that you know conviction multiple times. That I feel like that's <laughs> or, a, yeah, yeah. That that like multiple altar call responses. I I I responded to one at like a Carmen concert, you know. Uh, oh when, wow! <laughs> when I was like twelve, or I don't know how. Are you an eighties guy? Uh, well, I'm. Are you an eighties guy? I was, 90s guy. I was born in the 80s, so I'm more of a 90s kid. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, <laughs> but similar, similar experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so yeah, you, you responded at, did you say it was at a Bible camp or at a Bible school? It was vacation Bible school, just okay. your typical, like, like parents dumping off their kids kind of thing. Only I was the <laughs> preacher's kid. So, obviously, I had to be there. There was no question. Right. Yeah. So, so when you said you played along, was that something you sort of did um, for both your, uh, for both like your your family as well as the other congregants, or was it um, mostly to because, because of the other congregants sort of seeing you as this, you know, pastor's kid that responded 
to like uh, you know an altar call when they're very young. Um, what what sort of played into that? And and you like the way you described it, you were you were playing a role because it was just a uh, you know an uh, impromptu thing for you because you're a five year old. <laughs> right, and I right. just literally just went up there to stand with my dad, and that was it. There was nothing more to it than I had no other motivations than just like, hey, that's my dad. I'm gonna go hang out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I'm sure there was some like, oh, well, he's calling people up, so I should go up there. Uh, but then. Um, but then, you know, once people saw me up there standing, then, you know, they were responding to all oh, the preacher's daughters getting saved. Awesome. And then, you know, in my own little mind, like whatever version of, oh, crap, um, <laughs> that you have when you're five, you know, I realized that people had misunderstood what was going on. But then at that point, it felt like such a big deal that, you know, I didn't feel like I could you know, just be like, hey, I was just up here to say hi to my dad. Um, sorry. You know, I, I didn't really feel like I could do that. And so um, and so I yeah, I just went along with it. But then, yeah, like I said, a couple of years later, uh, when we were in Paragool and I was at vacation Bible school, I had actually at some point told my dad that um, when in Bentonville, when I had gone through the whole thing, that it had actually been due to a misunderstanding. And so um and so at that point, then I guess you could call when I was seven or whenever the real time that I got saved. Um, if you want to think of that as a real thing, which I don't necessarily <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, so I, it was kind of a weird experience just because um, the whole playing along aspect, which I feel like characterized a lot of my experience as being a PK, you yeah. know, there was just, it was a role in the community that I was expected to play and it was not something that I really enjoyed necessarily. Um, it yeah. was just, you know, if I did anything where I got in trouble, um, you know, inevitably the Sunday school teacher or the, the t- school teacher for that matter, or anybody else would just be like, and you're a preacher's kid too. We would expect better from you. Like I was some, you know, supernatural child who, somehow was capable of better behavior than normal children. (laughs) And so, um, and so it was just kind of this thing where I was like, okay, well I have to, you know, be this exemplar for the community or whatever, because it reflects on my dad and therefore reflects on the church and therefore reflects, reflects on the Lord, I guess. And so um, I was kind of, you know, it it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I was really aware of it from a very young age. And so, um, and so it was just something where, you know, I, I didn't, honestly, church to me was not ever something I enjoyed. It was not ever a place where I felt warm and safe. It was always a place where I felt very scrutinized. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot to put on a five-year, I mean, you were five that first time. That's so much to put well, and, on a... and, and clearly I was aware of people's expectations already at that time, or I wouldn't have played along, but you know, it, right. I only became more aware of it the, the, as things went on. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of pivoting to your other, the other side of things, uh, as far as your, you know, your childhood and adolescence, what was your, um, did you go to like public school or did you go to like a, a church affiliated school? What was that part of your childhood like? In the town I was in, we didn't have a lot of church affiliated schools. We had, um, we had a, uh, we had a, a Catholic school in town that went up to, I think, sixth or eighth grade. And then we had um, a Church of Christ school. And and when you say Church of Christ, 
you have to say it like that. You have to say it with a Southern accent. You have to say Church of Christ. <laughs> and so there was a Church of Christ school um, in town. And because, you know, Church of Christ and Baptist, two totally different things, um, that there was never a consideration of sending me to the Church of Christ school or the Catholic school for that matter. Although I almost think they would have sent me to Catholic school before Church of Christ, <laughs> oddly enough. Um, but no, I went to public school and my mom was also a public school teacher. Uh, she was a middle school English teacher and she's retired now, but, um, she was my, uh, middle school, my eighth grade English teacher, if that tells you anything about the size of our school in our town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I was not only a preacher's kid, I was also a teacher's kid. And so there are certain expectations associated with that as well. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know, just, you know, I went to church all the time and, um, you know, every time the doors were open, you know, I pretty much did what I was supposed to do. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard for me now to think about, you know, how much of a believer I was because I just didn't know anything else. And so it's not whether I was a believer or not. It was just like, that was the default, you know, kind of what, what was there was the default and I didn't have anything to test it against. And so I guess I believe to that extent, but like, you know, evangelizing and trying to win other kids for the Lord and things like that. Like I was not an outgoing child. And so that was really hard for me and not something that I was ever particularly good at. Was that something that was expected of you to, to like, probably, I don't know. Cause it's interesting because my parents on the one hand were incredibly strict and incredibly, you know, expecting a lot out of me. But on the other hand, they weirdly also let me be myself to a certain extent. And like, you know, if I expressed, you know, this shyness or this, you know, reticence to be a real evangelist kid or whatever, you know, I don't recall specifically them saying, no, you have to do this. Um, and, and it seems like maybe they were just like, well, that's not everybody's cup of tea, whatever, you know, right? I, you can still be a, you know, whatever they like a lifestyle witness. I don't think they use that term, but, um, right. yeah, that but, you know, by exemplifying whatever it is. Right. That wasn't your, uh, what is it? Gift of the spirits. I can't. Remember. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was not, unfortunately, one of my gifts of the spirit was discernment, which, <laughs> Which meant that I figured a lot of stuff out at a really young age, and we'll get into that. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I kind of seeing how the sausage was made from a really early age made me very skeptical. Let's just say that. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's totally understandable since you you spend so much of your time in the church building and and mm-hmm. seeing the the sort of the inner workings of church politics and and uh, oh yeah. And the way, um, the way, you know, church people can be. (laughs) Yes. And that's kind of my, my later childhood and early adolescence was uh, some real distinct exposure to that because there was, you know, Baptist churches, at least Southern Baptist churches don't have a bishop. They don't have really a mechanism for, you know, moving people around when things get stale or whatever. Right. And so pretty much you know, a Southern Baptist pastor either finds another church on his own or he uh, gets voted out one or the other. And so already when I was like, I want to say like nine years old, there started being a lot of tension in the church. And uh, for instance, there was a big thing about um, allowing uh, 
divorced men to be deacons. Mm -hmm. And my dad sort of took whatever supposedly was the biblical position on that and was just like, no. But then there are people in the church who are like, well, you know, we want to be deacons or whatever. And, you know, I think that church um, and religion in general for me has always been kind of this thing of just watching people uh, either want to give their power away, uh, kind of abdicate their responsibility to some kind of father figure or to vie for, for being that figure, for having that power. And uh, that was really something that I observed a lot of as a kid. And it, it went right down to people picking on me. Um, you know, there would be kids who heard their parents talk shit about, you know, my dad or whatever. And then it, that would come back to me. And so I got bullied a lot at church. I got talked down to. I got insulted. I got thrown in a trash can one time. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, and then uh, my favorite was the uh, the children's choir teacher. They had this system where when you did something good, you got a sticker on your music folder. And, you know, stickers when you're nine years old are everything, right? Um, you know, unicorn stickers, Smurf stickers, puffy stickers, yeah. fuzzy stickers, stickers that smell, you know. And so... Um, and so I, you know, I looked around and in children's choir, and so all these other kids had so many stickers, and I had like two, oh, and gosh. it was very obvious that I was being picked on, and so, um, you know, and so I, I, you know, I told my dad about it, and I don't know exactly what was done, but um, it didn't feel like anything was done from my perspective, and so I just felt very abandoned in all that, you know. My dad was kind of he was constantly on the phone with you know, this deacon or that deacon trying to finagle this vote or that vote. And that just went on for years and years. And so it was just, yeah, like I said, I mean, I saw how the sausage was made, <laughs> Yeah. you know, because, because there weren't like multiple phone phones in the house or anything like that. And, you know, that was when corded phones were still happening. So, I mean, it was right there in the living room. I could hear it. Right. And, yeah. um, and so, and you know, and and so I just, like I said, it was just seeing how the sausage was made and seeing the kind of inner workings of um, religious authority, if you will. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a lot to be exposed to. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's not it's not inconsequential, you know, when that's part of your the formation and you know, of your understanding when you're when absolutely you're a kid. that's you absolutely know, yeah and man to hear that you were to hear that you were you know bullied and, and picked on that that compound that, i mean that's that went awful. on for years that went on for years um probably from the from when i was nine until i was about 14 or 15 and uh yeah it just it, that that to me kind of formed a lot of it i saw um, one time, uh, we were walking into the sanctuary and there were, um, I think my mom was a little he- ahead of me and said hi to these two ladies who were part of the yuck faction, whatever their deal was. And, um, and then so, so she said hi to them cause I guess she was trying to be nice. And then, and then she went on into the sanctuary and they didn't know that I was behind them and they were just like, meh, meh, and like mocking her and stuff. And I mean, I rounded the corner, you know, having heard them and having seen them. And I was just like, you know, I'm right here. And they didn't even really care. And it was just, you know, it was just a lot of experiences like that. Mm-hmm. And and it was really hard for me to see this as a spiritual community or as anything that I really wanted to be a part of, to be honest. And, yeah. um, and when I was about, 
I think I was maybe 14 or 15 and like I begged my parents to let me go live with my aunt or to um, send me to boarding school or something. I mean, boarding school. What did I know about boarding school? I just had heard of them, you know, from like books I had read and things like that. But, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but of course, of course they said no, but, um, but, you know, it was something that I really saw myself as wanting to get away from. And then, uh, and then sort of the faction of people who wanted my dad out kept growing and growing and they would spread rumors like he kept a gun in the pulpit and all kinds of crazy crap like that. And um, and so it just became this like, you know, everybody in the town knew that this mess was happening. And some people were, you know, had some sympathy for me and, and you know, felt for my parents and some people really didn't. And uh, so he, he looked for other churches and didn't seem to find one. And so eventually things were going to come to a vote. And, uh, and it was a few weeks before that I was, um, you know, we had Wednesday night fellowship dinner or whatever. And so, um, and so my mom and I went into the fellowship and, and I looked around. And the way I describe it now is kind of like, spoiler alert, the end of the Matrix, <laughs> where, um, where he sees everything in code and sees, you know, essentially what's really going on, you know, what the real picture is. And, um, and I walked into kind of the gathering before the fellowship dinner, before dinner got served and just looked around and I started crying and I just couldn't stop. And, uh, my mom took me into like a little, you know, Sunday school room or whatever. And like, what's going on? And I was just like, I can't be here. Like, I cannot be here anymore. And, uh, she took me home. And I said, I don't ever want to go back. And she's like, you don't have to. And to this day, I still can't believe that happened. Because that was like the first time I ever felt like my parents got where I was coming from. And, uh, and it was, but it, it, in such a profound way, she's like, no, you don't have to go back. And so the only time I went back was, um, was when they were actually going to stage the vote. And my dad resigned before they could vote. And then we were out. And so, which means that they're like, okay, you have like a week to get out of the parsonage and find a new place to live and all kinds of stuff like that. And so, you know, that was happening when I was like 14, 15. And that's kind of when you really become who you are, you know, when you're like eh, 14 through 17. And so that kind of characterized my experience of the church was this matrix moment of just these people are completely full of shit, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, it's nothing but hypocrisy. It's nothing but people struggling for power. It's nothing, there's nothing of spiritual value going on here. And, um, yeah, and so my parents didn't make me go to church. It was insane. Like, I, I stayed home on Sunday mornings and, like, watched MTV, and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it's not that I, you know, and I had tried really hard to, you know, really believe like I was supposed to, and, like, I did these you know, morning devotionals for a long time. Um, you know, and my parents read the Bible to me every night from when I was like probably 18 months old until I was about 12 or 13. And then they expected me to, you know, do my own Bible study or whatever. And so it's not like I didn't try, (laughs) but, uh, it just, it just always felt a little bit hollow to me. And, um, and, you know, in and amongst all that, you know, I was a pretty smart kid. And, you know, I would check out books about things that interested me. And my parents never censored what I read, um, which, again, is a really interesting thing considering my dad's profession. But, um, you know, I think they were happy for me to just read whatever I read. And so I would get books about science. And I got a book about evolution one time from uh, from the library and read it. And I was like, holy cow, this makes sense. Like, like 
this has been characterized to me as some crazy, insane, you know, what monkeys into people, what's that? And then when I actually read the book, I was like, oh, well, actually this incremental change over time thing seems to make sense. Why wouldn't that make sense? And so I had this long conversation with my dad about it. And it, it became apparent to me that like, I mean, he's a smart man. He's an educated man. He went to seminary, he went to Southern Seminary when it was not a fundamentalist institution. It was just a normal seminary when the Baptist church was still kind of a normal denomination, although given its history in the South, I mean, it wasn't entirely, but I think there was a period of time there, especially in the mid to late 1960s when he was actually in seminary, when they were attempting to kind of uh, rectify their, um, you know, previous stances on things. And, uh, you know, they had a school of social work, they had, you know, all kinds of things like that. And, um, and so, you know, he knew about the translations of the Bible, he knew about all the stuff that they teach people in normal mainline seminaries. Uh, and so when I talked, I started talking to him about all this technical stuff, he's like, yeah, well, you know, actually, I mean, you know, what is eight, what is seven days, or what is eight days? And, you know, we don't really know if that was eons and all kinds of stuff like that. And I was like, well, now you tell me, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I wish we had had this conversation a long time ago. And so, um, you know, and, and my parents have this very weird aspect of, of on the one hand being very good Baptist, but on the other hand, um, being like, well, like they've always voted Democrat, for example, and uh, my dad's, or I think maybe it was my mom that, that said something to the effect of, well, we'll never be rich enough to vote Republican. <laughs> and that was her that was her explanation. And like the abortion thing did not convince them like it does a lot of people. And I, you know, I don't know why, but like they, they were just not, um, not that kind of fundamentalist, political kind of fundamentalist that you see now. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're whatever the previous version of Southern Baptists were. Um, yeah. but, but yet they, you know, were in an environment where, you know, I mean, my dad also received the American Family Association Journal. Uh, and so, you know, I would read that and be like, ooh, what's all this about homosexuality? And, and like, and the weird thing about the AFA Journal, which was very fascinating for me, even at the time, uh, was that on the one hand, they would be against all these things, but they would talk about them in lurid detail. And so, you know, I <laughs> yeah. learned about all these dirty Prince lyrics from the American Family Association <laughs> Journal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I want to go listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that, that, that fascination reveals something that they probably don't intend to reveal. <laughs> no, no. And, and I mean, there's a whole passage in Foucault about that, about the Inquisition and how they made people... Um, confessed to like the, the most detailed things they possibly could. And, and, you know, his theory, of course, is part of that was this like double pleasure of, of rejecting something, but also enjoying it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a, um, the podcast, uh, you made it weird. Um, Pete Holmes, he, he, and it's not his, it's not his idea necessarily, but he references an idea of like the shadow self. Um, mm -hmm. and, and uh, and how that sometimes wants to be expressed. Um, it's a it's a it's a kind of out there idea. I don't exact. I don't know the whole thing, um, and I'm not very familiar with it. But I understand like where that sort of impulse is, and it seems to be the sort of thing that's that's sort of revealed in those thing in those uh, 
people being preoccupied with the things that supposedly they find uh, repulsive. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, anyway, there was a lot of that in the AFA journal in the yeah. mid to late 80s. Yeah, and yeah. I read it cover to cover every single time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's um that's very interesting about your uh about your parents and the sort of um open-mindedness that they had with you uh and with them with their own sort of individual stances. Um in that sort of environment where things were slowly becoming uh, more conservative in that Southern Baptist convention in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, And we attended Southern Baptist conventions. I mean, that was kind of our family vacation in the summer was, you know, we would go to whatever city it was in and get to stay in a halfway, you know, I would say probably like a three to four star hotel, um, Mm -hmm. like your, your mid to upper priced business hotel type hotel. And, um, you know, one that we wouldn't have afforded otherwise, in other words, and, uh, you know, that the church paid for dad to go to this convention. And so mom and I would go along. And then while he was at these tearfully boring meetings, um, (laughs) cause I went to one one time and I was like, Oh, you know, get me out of here ASAP. And, um, and so then mom and I would, you know, go to the mall or go to a bookstore or something like that (laughs) instead. Mm. And or hang out at the pool at the hotel or something. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, he was, very much involved in he never held office or anything like that but he was very much involved in the life in the life of the SBC and you know attended state and national level stuff like that and was very informed about what was going on um but uh, you know at the same time I was a very tomboyish little kid um that has never changed like that's always been kind of the case for me and um, when I was a little, little kid, again, you know, kind of like they didn't restrict my reading. They also didn't ex- restrict the toys that I played with or even in some cases the clothes that I wore. I mean, you know, granted we were country and I think that was part of it. But, um, you know, I mean, it was very common to see me running around in like some, you know, corduroys and a flannel shirt, which you could definitely see me in now as well. And <laughs> Um, you know, and it's just interesting that, that on the one hand, like they were pretty open-minded about certain things, but then certain other things, absolutely not. And, um, and so it was kind of a weird way to grow up because (laughs) I mean, the church was, I mean, they were extremely restrictive, but also not Yeah, like they were very restrictive of what I watched on TV, for example, like, um, like three's company was something I was not allowed to watch because it was two ladies and a guy living together. And the guy was purportedly posing as being gay but it was kind of ambiguous and anyway I never understood that at the time (laughs) and what's funny is of course when I was in college I was two ladies living with the gay guy and my dad was fine with it then because you know I guess he thought there would be no hanky-panky between roommates (laughs) 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 but but it was just a strange thing you know to kind of on the one hand them being so restricted on the other hand not yeah Yeah, 
that's and that that is definitely an interesting sort of trying to figure that out as a as a kid. Like, what do you need? What do you have to push back on? What do you <laughs> not have to push back on? And get and trying to find that uh, where where the boundaries are and where they where mm-hmm. <laughs> where they aren't. Because because I was very into like Star Wars and sci-fi, and they never did anything but encourage that. But like, I wasn't allowed to go see the Dark Crystal. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's healthy stuff. Yeah, um, it is. It's a weird movie, though. <laughs> it is super weird. It's I actually so watched weird. it for the first time like a year ago, and I was like, "Holy crap, this was for children." <laughs> Good yeah. grief. <laughs> yeah, that and I, I discovered that in Labyrinth too late, and I was like, "Okay, this is, <laughs> this is very, this is very weird. I'm not comfortable here." <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so. Let's talk a little bit specifically about your um, uh, about like your your teen years and your and college too, and what that was like for you. you. You said that you didn't your parents didn't force you to go to church again after this this like the matrix show. incident. Yeah, yeah, that and the sh- and like the 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 church showdown and everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what was it like? You know, when you were when you were no longer expected to go. And where did you decide to go to college and everything? Well, um, so so after that, um, you know, I didn't I didn't volunteer. I didn't I wasn't forced to go to church anymore. Um, I did every now and then. There was a, of course, because all it takes to start a new church is a resentment and like five people. And so, um, <laughs> so they started a new church, which they kind of vindictively named Second Baptist Church. Um, and uh, and it was like a storefront church that my dad was involved in for a while. And um, I remember one time my relatives came, came in to visit. And so my dad was like, hey, come to our new church, whatever. And my aunt was crying because she felt like it was a real um, step down for my dad to be in, in a storefront church as opposed to this nice, you know, beautiful built in the late 19th century church that he was in before. And, um, and, and I remember just being like, whatever, but of course I think maybe they encouraged me to go while the relatives were in town. Cause I guess maybe they wanted to, for me to look good to the relatives. I don't know, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, and so, I mean, he, he stayed involved in churches. He was a, he was a, um, fill in preacher. Uh, and then he and mom both, uh, went during the summers, uh, to get master's degrees in English. Uh, and because my dad's original undergrad had been in English, and my mom was an English teacher and had wanted to, you know, update her credentials or whatever. And so they, uh, during the summers, they went to um, to college, uh, the next town over, uh, to work on master's degrees in English. And um, uh, later in high school, I got involved a little bit with the Methodist Church. Um, there was a guy in my class whose dad was the assistant pastor at the first Methodist church in town. And, uh, and so my, uh, best friend, Matthew and I went to that for a while because we were both in a phase of kind of questioning our place in all this stuff, um, with religion because we had both grown up Baptist and then, um, and then, but, you know, didn't know where to place that part of our lives after that because obviously we didn't want to be involved with the Baptist church anymore but like at the same time you know I think a lot of people talk about this religion shaped void that people have Mm -hmm. and um and so uh, you know I went and so the pastor there 
started blowing my mind with all this stuff about how the Bible was, you know, interpreted through all these different languages and like a committee decided what books were going to be in the Bible and what didn't. And, you know, all these things that I had kind of never stopped to really think that much about or question, you know, when I was part of the Baptist church. But then, you know, so that kind of unlocked things for me even more because I was just like, well, okay, well, if this is something that people wrote, then it's fallible. And, you know, no wonder this whole system is kind of messed up. Uh, at least in terms of denominations where people try to believe in it literally when, you know, he pointed out like, well, there's this version of the story in this book, but then there's this version of the story in that book. And I had heard the Bible read to me so many times and never noticed that. Um, And so it was just interesting to get that other perspective on it. And so I, for a while, was just kind of like, well, you know, maybe there's other forms of Christianity that I can tolerate. And, um, and when I was in, uh, undergrad i went to the episcopal church for a while i actually got confirmed in the episcopal church um because specifically there was a really charismatic uh lady priest at our episcopal church in uh, where i went to college and i went to a methodist college which my parents were happy about um (laughs) like i had i had almost gone to um to university of arkansas but then um i got kind of a last minute scholarship uh, at the school, um, Hendricks College in uh, Central Arkansas, because it was affiliated with the Methodist Church, and uh, pastors' kids of any denomination uh, got a little bit extra scholarship. And so um, my parents were like, yeah, you can go there. Um, and uh, by this time, my dad was kind of a lecturer at um, at, Ar- at Arkansas State University in, in English, and oddly enough, philosophy. Uh, and was um, also still a pastor at various kind of local churches. And, um, and yeah, so I went to college and I took a bunch of, you know, trying to figure stuff out. I took a lot of religion courses and I took a, particularly a course called American Fundamentalism that was kind of a historical approach to, um, you know, how that developed. And again, it was kind of a real mind opener for me because I was just like, so this whole thing of this whole belief system about, you know, this is literal and there are these five fundamentals you just absolutely have to believe or nothing. And, um, you know, that that also was historically situated, that that had developed in a particular political atmosphere and, and time period. And, uh, and, you know, it just, you know, made it possible for me to kind of, really break loose from a lot of that stuff but at the same time um at that point i was going through you know dealing with my sexuality uh which was a whole nother ball game because of course you know every message i had gotten about anything related to homosexuality at home at church probably at school as well um not to mention you know i had already been called a lesbian and a dyke by the kids who had bullied me at church when i didn't even really know what those words meant other than you know demonic (laughs) and uh Hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's when, you know, cause I met other kids who were gay when I was in college and, um, you know, I, I started listening to what they were talking about and I was like, you know, I mean, I had dated boys in high school, like my main high school boyfriend turned out to be gay. And so, you know, like when we kissed each other the first time, our reaction was literally just like, oh, well that wasn't so bad. Um, (laughs) you know, I mean, and I didn't take that as an insult because that was my reaction too. And, um, we were like, okay, well, I guess that wasn't so bad. And so, you know, I hadn't really experienced any kind of sexual temptation because I just, you know, I had only dated guys and I 
I mean, they were perfectly fine people and I enjoyed spending time with them. But my feelings as far as romantic type feelings were very muted at best. And so I always thought that was because I was, um, you know, raised in this religious environment where, you know, that's just not something that you want to be involved in. But, you know, little did I know that all my friends who were talking about sex all the time actually really liked it and (laughs) were into it. And this was a thing they wanted to be doing. And I just thought it was like this thing that people talked about for show or that girls did to keep their boyfriends or whatever. I didn't think about it as this thing that people wanted to do. And, um, and so you could say I was kind of asexual for a long time, um, not necessarily by choice, but just by like default, um, because, you know, this thing of compulsory heterosexuality when, you know, that's all you see and that's all, you know, and anything other than that is, is just kind of labeled as bad, um, you know, feelings that I had for friends, you know, starting when I was like 12 or 13, you know, certain female friends, I would just have these special feelings for. And I just thought that's what everybody feels for certain special friends. And so it didn't occur to me as anything weird. And so therefore not gay. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, and it's not like I had anybody to talk to this, talk to about this stuff. And so, you know, it was kind of like, well, I don't know. I just have these special feelings. But, you know, that's not who you date. You date guys. Like, the concept of dating girls would have never occurred to me uh, until I started meeting other young gay people when I was in college. And then um, I started kind of questioning that stuff. But, again, you know, I had a ton of internalized homophobia from how I'd been raised. And um, and so that was something that I didn't talk to people about for a long time. Just kind of in my head, I started identifying to myself as like not straight but I couldn't take myself any further than that and so and I feel like a lot of what kept me you know not really dealing with that until I was in my early 20s was uh the fact that you know all my exposure to anything related to gay stuff prior to being 18 years old was purely negative and so, um, and so that, that was a process that took a long time too. And then, you know, working up the courage to tell my parents and all this stuff and, um, their reaction was negative. <laughs> it was very negative. Um, but I was like 25 years old by the time I told them. And so, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't live with them anymore. I didn't, I wasn't financially dependent on them anymore. And so, you know, I went to therapy for like six months preparing to tell them cause I knew it wouldn't be easy. And, um, it sure wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, but that's like that and the kids at the church are the only real homophobia I've ever experienced. Um, you know, and my dad was saying things like, Oh, well, you know, you'll never be successful now. And, you know, you have to turn away from this and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was just kind of like, you raised me not to be a liar. You know, lying is not something I plan on doing. So sorry. <laughs> and and that was kind of one of those things. Like there's an episode of Star Trek where uh, Spock argues the computer into submission because he, it turns its logic in on itself. And um, and that was kind of where I ended up with my dad. You know, I was like, well, I'm not going to lie. So too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, and he could, that, there's not that much he could say at that point other than just being like, I hate this. <laughs> You know, bad things are going to happen to you. Um, And so we didn't talk for a long time. 
And uh, to this day, I think he sees it as some kind of weird teenage rebellion, even though I'm like 45 now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but he sees it as and, you know, if I was 15 and it was like three months worth of, you know, haha, I'm gay, dad. You know, that would be one thing because, I mean, sure, that can happen. But um, this was not that (laughs) this was definitely not that. And so, um, yeah, he didn't come to my wedding. Uh, My wife and I got married in 2016 and he did not come. And it was it was largely due to uh, people people in the church had found out like I don't know how he had kept this information because it's not like I tried to keep it quiet um, you know I was out to everybody from my hometown and stuff like all my classmates and all that people that I still had contact with um, I had never tried to hide it after I came out and um, but somehow like his church didn't know but then um, my mom was on Facebook. <laughs> And she was both Facebook friends with people from church and, you know, just random other people. And, uh, and I, and my, my dad and I, after the pulse shooting happened in Orlando, my dad and I came to what I thought was going to be this really big understanding. Um, and that he had said he was going to come to the wedding and I was overjoyed and so excited. And, um, and so I, uh, I wrote this thing on Facebook about how happy I was and blah, blah, blah. And then I tagged mom in the post <laughs> And um, and people from church saw it, and then it became a big deal in his church that his completely 100% grown child who had not lived with him in like 20-something years um, was gay. And um, and so he ended up not coming to the wedding because there were rumors that he was going to be presiding over it. And I'm, I'm just like, like, like I'm going to be... Uh, like I'm gonna be in a Baptist wedding? No, thank you. I'm not gonna have a <laughs> gay Baptist wedding. What is that? Like that doesn't <laughs> even exist. And so, um, you know, it was a Buddhist wedding, as a matter of fact, which I'm sure would have thrilled him. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, well, it was Buddhist slash secular kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he um, he did not come, which I found out while I was getting ready for the wedding. Oh no! Uh, which made that a real hard day. Uh, but. You know, I mean, that was his choice. And this is where I kind of get sad about this stuff. Like, a lot of this stuff is really in the past, but this is actually relatively recent. Yeah. And we've never really talked about it. And so, you know, it's just like I have wedding pictures that he's never going to be in. Yeah. And that's too bad. Yeah. It's really too bad. Because I think he would have had the opportunity to see that, you know, this is my life. It's not something that I made up to ruin his reputation or whatever. And, um, you know, he would have seen that I have friends and that it was just a regular wedding. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that was his choice. My mom did come, and I was really happy about that. Uh, but, but yeah, it's just, you know, like I said, I mean, my parents were weirdly open-minded about certain things, but at certain other things they just absolutely were not. And, um, and that made for a strange experience growing up, but I'm still very grateful that they told me I didn't have to go back to church. Uh, because it was just, it was just killing me, you know, to have to go there and be around that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, you know, heavy, heavy feelings. Sure. Um, Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, they just, that's just what they are, you know? Yeah. That's my experience. Uh, but yeah, just for me, I don't know. I mean, that to me is evangelical, evangelicalism. It's just kind of adopting this ideology and 
you know, using that to govern your actions versus like actual human compassion. And, um, which is weird because as far as I can tell, that's kind of what Jesus was about. And so, um, you know, the whole thing just seems like this awful perverted mess to me. And I can't understand why anybody would want to be involved in it because, you know, it's a bunch of irrational beliefs. It's a bunch of contradictory beliefs and, you know, as stringent as a lot of evangelical churches are, no one can live up to that. Not a single person. Right. And so what, what that leaves people to be is hypocritical and, and grasping onto their ideology and grasping onto this, this, I guess, form of power that they feel over other people that they're somehow better. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so unfortunately I got a dose of that at a really early age. And so I, I don't know if I ever really believed that's the thing that I have a hard time right now thinking about is, was there ever a time when I felt comfortable in that set of beliefs? And I don't know that I ever did. I don't know that I ever did because even, you know, when I was like seven years old, I remember noticing that no women ever got up in front of the church for anything other than, um, you know, singing in the choir Right. And, uh, and you know, the women were, they, you know, fixed Wednesday night dinner and they, uh, took care of babies in the nursery and were Sunday school teachers, but they never had any position of any kind of, uh, you know, governance in the church. Right. And so I remember noticing that at a very young age and, and just being like, you know, why, why are there no pastors who are women? Why are there no deacons who are women? Why are there no women praying in front of the church? And, like, my parents had no good answer for that. You know, I mean, they gave the, like, you know, Bible answer about, you know, the sort of thing people equivocate about, well, there are separate roles and, you know, this kind of thing and that kind of thing. But, I mean, you know, I experienced my own self as being just as intelligent and capable as the boys around me. Right. And, And it seemed very strange to me that they were treated in a special way compared to girls and women. And yeah. so, you know, I had questions from an unfortunately early age that couldn't really be reconciled. Or like the one where I asked my mom if uh, Anne Frank went to hell because she was Jewish. There's no good answer for that question. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's yeah. no satisfactory answer for that question that can both stay with, you know, fundamentalist beliefs and still affirm the message of Anne Frank and my mom, you know, being a middle school English teacher loved Anne Frank. And so I kind of stumped her on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Those within fundamentalism, that's, you know, that's a catch 22 for sure. You know, you you either say that the Jewish people have a special covenant with God, like that's a line (laughs) Mm -hmm. or the other line is unfortunately no. But they're both some, true at the same time. That's the thing, right. because it's like you won't find I I doubt you would find a lot of fundamentalists who would be like, no, they're not God's chosen people. But at the same time, you know, you would be hard pressed to find one, you know, who really subscribes to that belief system, who could, you know, give them any kind of positive afterlife. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's a very good example for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of of the, of the, you know, the impossible questions you have uh, that put fundamentalist answers on, you know, on, on, um, 
shoot, I'm, I'm blanking on, on the term I want. Hey, when this happens, I, you know, you put them, you get them in a corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and apparently it was pretty easy to do because I didn't even mean to, but, um, yeah, yeah. you know, I was honestly just curious. I wasn't trying to rhetorically trap anybody as a, you know, seven or 10 year old, but, right. um, yeah. you know, it's just one of those things where I just saw these contradictions and wanted them explained to me. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, um, you know, so I don't know. I mean, I think when I was like maybe late middle school, early high school, I gave it my best shot at being, you know, a really strong believer. And we had a youth pastor um, late in my dad's career um, before he he quit the church there in Paragould, um, who was what I would consider to be honestly like what you're supposed to be as a Christian. Um, and, and the first lady leadership in church that I had ever met, she was a lady youth pastor and, um, and I'm still in contact with her actually on Facebook. I got back in touch with her a few years ago and she actually ended up leaving, uh, the SBC as well, uh, due to, uh, the gay thing and, you know, their stance on women and things like that. And, uh, but you know, so she was like the first person I think I met who was, exemplifying this stuff in a way that I could relate to. Right. Um, and so it's just, yeah, but it's, it's very, it's, that was the closest I came, I think, to being a true believer. Yeah. 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 That, and whatever, you know, uh, whatever it, you know, whatever God might be, I, I, I think God probably honor, you know, God would honor that. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, I don't know. I, I don't I, know. I, That's I, yeah. To me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I also don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kind of am in a place, you know, cause I, I was involved with the Episcopal church for a while. Right. Um, I got pretty involved in Zen Buddhism and that's the, that's the other closest I've ever come to finding something where I feel like there's a place for me in it. Um, right. because it's, you know, it's a very strong set of, of, ethical and moral practices, but there's not a thou shalt not attached to it. Right. And, um, and so that's something that I've been close involved with, but I I got so involved with it that I was made kind of some part of the leadership in the um, organization I'm involved in. And then that's seeing how that sausage was made. And so now I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know about that either. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, people wanting power and egos at stake and, you know, all of the same kind of stuff. And I just got through watching this uh, documentary series on Netflix. It's really interesting called Wild Wild Country about uh, a cult called the Rajneeshis in Oregon in the 80s. Oh, and I just saw again, that. it was and... very, oh, it's so fascinating. But it was very much this cult of personality surrounding this guy and then people vying for power. And, yeah. you know, on the one hand, buying for power, but on the other hand, also abdicating their responsibility to the mother figure character. Right. You know, and just yeah. kind of wanting to be led and wanting to be, you know, told something that's true. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really allergic to that. I'm really allergic to gurus. I, I went to see, um, what's his name, the the Bikram yoga guy, Bikram Chowdhury, go talk one time. And within 10 minutes, I got up and left because... He literally said, uh, there is only one answer, and I have the answer. And I'm like, as soon as you say that, I'm out. <laughs> right, yeah. As soon as yeah. you say, well, I mean, there is only one answer, but then 
I am the only one who has that answer. I am not on board with that because right. that only leads to to people getting duped. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Cult of personality is the, you know, that's a, a very big red flag. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. beforehand uh was that there does appear to be this really big divide and i can attest to this personally too because um similar to where 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 you were a few years ago i'm i've started attending like an episcopal church and sort of exploring that particular avenue um because it's very different than evangelicalism (laughs) you know um yeah absolutely um but when i was when i was going to the episcopal church Half like I went through confirmation and the whole thing, and um, half the people in the class were ex-Baptists, and the other half were ex-Catholics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I felt like that was pretty appropriate. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I, I feel like that is sort of the, the <laughs> their uh, clientele for like for lack of a better word, you know, um, these mm-hmm. people sort of migrating from other um, migrating from like other faith traditions to see, you know to see what this particular thing's about too. <laughs> Cause I, but uh, I mentioned that because there is this like sort of um, divide if someone is like a cradle, a Lutheran or a cradle Episcopalian. Um, I grew up United Methodist and I feel like evangelicalism oh, wow. is sort of baked into uh, some, some parts of uh, United Methodism, like small town uh, UM churches have a lot yeah, of yeah. I could see that. Have a lot of like evangelicalism in them. Um, uh, anyways, there is this sort of divide, and like, there might not be that much like uh, innate knowledge about what fundamentalism is, fundamentalism or fundamentalist evangelicalism is like um, in those places. Um, mm-hmm. And like, there's a there's a bit of like religious literacy that isn't quite there. <laughs> You know, uh-huh. um, and how like the one of the things that is very attractive for like an Episcopal church is that um, uh, women are affirmed, uh, mm-hmm. queer people are affirmed. You know, that's mm-hmm. you know that's a very big draw for, for someone that like doesn't come from that sort of place, and they're finally somewhere where if they do have like a, a spiritual longing. Um, but they also have this definable characteristic that's always been rejected. Like mm-hmm. to come into a place that has, you know, that affirms those things is a very big deal, but they also don't understand necessarily like the lived experience of someone like you who, mm-hmm. you know, has, who has all these negative associations with church. Um and how like there's this yeah there's just this big divide. <laughs> so given what you know about both of those things, what do you what and like how the cult of personality, regardless of whether you're in a Buddhist uh, thing or in uh, a mainline church or a fundamentalist church, like 
what do you see there as like the biggest sort of problem, I guess? Well, I mean, I mean, coming, it's weird, you know, as I'm sure you can relate, uh, coming from this perspective of having been inside that, that tradition. And and I say specifically fundamentalist, because I think there are evangelicals who are not fundamentalists. Um, and, and I'm talking about fundamentalism, uh, and so, uh, because like the sojourners are, are, aren't, don't they identify as evangelical? Uh, I believe so. Like, you know, um, who knows if they're going to pivot away post Trump. Um, yeah. Who knows? Right. Yeah. I, I, I keep a sort of, uh, loose eye on, on what they publish and talk about. Uh, but mm-hmm. yes, like in, in the past, you know, Gary Willis has sort of been this blue evangelical, you know, mm-hmm. uh, politically blue, but uh, trying to, you know, take gradually more and more liberal religious stances as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, yeah. So there are people that, that really do try to toe the line. I think it's becoming more and more impossible to be evangelical without being fundamentalist. Yes. So, um, yeah, that's that's my sort of working thesis is that like as as time goes on, the, the, the sphere of uh, – um, of acceptability in evangelicalism gets smaller and smaller and mm-hmm. smaller. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah, that's, that's sort of my take on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, point being, you know, I think growing up inside fundamentalism and, you know, like I said, I don't know if I was a true believer or not. I don't know, but I mean, it was all I knew for a long time. Right. And so to that extent, I can say that I was a believer. Yeah. Um, because I didn't believe in anything else. Right. Uh, and so, you know, because I didn't know about anything else. And so to come from, you know, such a, a total perspective and, you know, I think of fundamentalism as an ideology because, you know, an ideology is something that colors everything you see or do or smell or taste or, you know, anything. And, uh, and you know, to come from inside that and then to so fully see, you know, the man behind the curtain, uh, you know, as I did at a relatively young age, um, you know, I feel like I do have a pretty unique perspective on this. And, yeah. and I think that people who, you know, grew up in Christian environments that weren't evangelical or fundamentalist, um, you know, people who were, say, you know, born into Lutheranism or something like and I, mainstream Lutheranism, not Missouri Synod. That's a whole other thing that right. I learned about relatively <laughs> recently. Yeah, but, yeah, it's um, totally different. But, yeah. And so, um, you know, any kind of mainline Protestant denomination, I think the people that I know from that world, it was such a cozy place and they did felt feel loved and they did feel cared for. And, you know, their belief in God was never um, shaken, I guess, by life experience because, you know, it, it was just a different kind of belief. Yeah. And so, um, and so I think it's really hard for those folks to understand the kind of rabid nature of, of fundamentalism mm. and how it, you know, there's no room for questioning. There's no room for doubt. And you're either in or you're out. You're either going to heaven or you're not. Yeah. You know, and there's just, it's very stark. It's very black and white. And I have a friend um, who was Methodist growing up, and he's now an Episcopal priest uh, who I talk to periodically on uh, on Facebook. And mm. he and I both kind of went through sort of religious questioning stuff around the same time. Um, and he kind of moved from Methodism over to, um, to the Episcopal Church eventually. And, um, you know, we've just had these long conversations about, say, the difference between faith and belief or the difference between 
um, you know, being able to interpret scripture and not. And it's just hard for me to imagine a Christianity. I mean, I've, you know, I've been involved in the Episcopal Church, but it's very hard for me to imagine Christianity that can both, you know, and this black and white thinking comes from, you know, the child, the childhood that I had, but it's yeah. very hard for me to imagine a moderate Christianity, even mm-hmm. though I know it exists. And I feel like the people, you know, inside those moderate denominations just don't understand how black and white the world of fundamentalism is. And I think they don't understand how rabid it is and how that ideology can supersede all others. Yeah. You know, affiliation with even your country in some cases. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even the Constitution and, you know, people I, I've had, uh, I teach humanities classes uh, sometimes and I like to do the uh, utopia dystopia theme. And I always have students read uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And, um, you know, kids that I've had who have come from fundamentalist backgrounds, but who have moved away from that really relate to that book in a very different way than folks who have either grown up in other religions or more mainline type uh, situations. And I've had kids who um, who grew up Muslim who read that book that also um, kind of really were like, oh yeah, fundamentalism. And so uh, it's very interesting to me that it kind of doesn't even matter what religion it is. Fundamentalism is a thing into itself. It's a structural mm-hmm. affiliation kind of. Yeah. And, um, and it's a f- affiliation to a particular ideology unto death. Right. Yeah. And and I think that mainline folks who have grown up in a moderate world just don't understand that affiliation unto death. And I mean, people will die for this. They would absolutely die for this. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Like anything that people are willing to die for and or maybe kill for is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And um and for me something like the handmaid's tale is not unthinkable. You know, especially not now. Um, and I know that's obviously an, an extreme, uh, but at the same time, you know, somebody like Mike Pence, if he were in charge, God knows, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I don't know what he would do um, if, if given free reign. And, um, you know, at this point, we're kind of getting into the world of, of constitutional crisis and all kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, and so even, you know, there's no such thing as, um, you know, being able to infallibly rely on even an institution like democracy because we don't know. And my my PhD is in German studies, and so I've really studied the dismantling of democracy pretty thoroughly. And uh, it can happen. And all it had all it, all that's required is people having having an ideology that they would die for. And uh, to me, this is frightening. Mm-hmm. And kind of what we're seeing politically now is extremely frightening. Yet not surprising to me, you know, given the world that I grew up in. Right. I mean, I, I, but I think that there's just, you know, even, even amongst American Christians, they cannot fathom that kind of devotion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely true. And that's why I think, you know, people need to hear stories like yours because you Mm -hmm. can speak to that personally. You can speak to that. Like I've, I've seen this, I've lived this, this is real. You know, this is what's happening in churches all over the country. Um, well, and be, being so closely identified with an ideology like that makes you hate other people. Like you yes. can't not hate other people. 
you know, there's no such thing as, as live and let live under that system. Right. Yeah. There just isn't. And so the fact that it blends so well with, with, you know, militarism and that it blends so fa well, frankly, with authoritarianism or fascism, if you will, um, is not surprising to me at all. Right. Yeah, because it's a it's a outright rejection of modernist and postmodernist assumptions. I mean, that's well, you know, it's a, it's, well, it's an, a, a, yeah, it's an attempt it's to a, find that. <laughs> Anyways, continue. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just it's a it's a it's the it's like it's like in 1984 the concept of double think being able to just reject something that is factually there in front of your face. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's really what's going on on a huge scale. And I think that, you know, the evangelical fundamentalist base that has supported Trump, I mean, you know, had an affair with a porn star and paid her off so she wouldn't talk about it before the election. They're able to accept that. That's everything against yeah. what fundamentalism is supposed to be about. And it was this, it's the same group of people that, that impeached Bill Clinton for having uh -huh. an affair. I mean, yeah. there, there's, you know, that entire affair is very problematic and the more we learn sure. about it, you know. of course. But that's not to, uh, Trump paying off someone that, that he had an affair with is just as, pro you know, it's also extremely problematic, but they give him their evangelical mulligans all the time, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and just this idea that he's, you know, this imperfect vessel or that, you know, right. he, it's the all this stuff is the Lord's will. Well, what about Obama wasn't the Lord's will then? You know, right. I mean, it's just arbitrary. It just whatever fits with their ideology is what they're going to condone. Right. And, you know, and like Billy Graham's passing recently. Um you know, everybody, not that he wasn't lionized in life, but, you know, people lionizing him. And But, I mean, that's the guy who made fundamentalism palatable to the masses. Right. You know, he's he's one of, he and the televangelists are like the people who made that happen. Yeah. I really like the way you said rabid, fun, rabid uh, fundamentalism and rabid ideology. I think that's like a perfect way to sort of describe the sort of, inner workings and like the sort of mental uh environment that people have in and even in some more mainline evangelical behaviors and evangelical circles like mm -hmm. i think that's such a you know a very 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 pertinent and poignant way to describe that because you always feel like you're on your toes all the time you're in this sense mm -hmm. of heightened awareness like mm -hmm. um what what uh, what thoughts do you need to submit to God and and you know mm -hmm. who do you need to who do you need to to snitch on like who's who's it's getting in trouble who's not getting in trouble mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's every minute of every day and that's the thing that I think a lot of people who weren't either raised in a religious environment or a fundamentalist environment get like it's right. every thought it's every action it's every everything that you do right all day every day. But at the same time, it's so corruptible because, you know, when it's an ideology and it's not, you know, human thought and human compassion that's governing your actions, like, you know, you're capable of anything, really. Yeah. Yep. And the leaders always, always forgive themselves, you know, if, sure, it's, a, sure. if it's a, if it's a white man, then, you know, you right. Can, you, you can do anything. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I could walk into a fundamentalist church and. And, you know, 
I I would have a lot of authority just because of the way I look and. <laughs> well, and you, you know? would you would be immediately sought after as right. somebody they want as a member. Right. And, yep. and that's you know, messed up. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would be quote unquote a good prospect. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. Which is really messed up. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 That's. Uh, that yeah rabid rabid fundamentalism is is uh i'm gonna use that i'm gonna credit you but i'm I going mean, to you, use an, another another analogy that i use is, is that it's cancerous sort of like once it takes hold and metastasizes if you will like it's right. just very hard to get rid of yeah yeah um and it's you know it's kind of like a meme or a virus where you know it catches on it gets passed from one person to another right you know there are all kinds of analogies you could use but yeah i yeah. mean just the fact that it it comes to govern, you know, even people's rationality, um, uh -huh. it it supersedes even that, and uh, and that's something that I, I at least always appreciated about the Methodist Church was the fact that they did talk about human reason. You know, it was it was a product of the Enlightenment, and they talked about, you know, using your God given reason or whatever, and that was definitely not something that was emphasized in the Southern Baptist Church. Right. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, doubt, uh, anything that, that contradicted, you know, what we were told was considered just either non-existent or something that you should abhor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would, uh, I went to a Wesleyan college. Uh, oh, okay. Um, and so there is like, uh, a more conservative version of Methodism called the right. Wesleyan church. Right. Um, I'm not, my, um, my wife grew up in Virginia and uh, I went to a Wesleyan church. I don't know how far into the south they go. Um, but mm -hmm. anyways, they um, they they teach what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And it's mm -hmm. like these four different areas of uh, these four different things that inform your, your faith and your belief. Um, one is scripture. One is tradition. Uh, the third is reason and the fourth is personal experience so those hmm. that's like their little way to balance things but yes definitely in in methodism reason does play a role <laughs> well uh, instead, i mean i, I know yeah. that individual churches also have you know more of an evangelical bent to them than like the i feel i feel like the the first methodist church where i went to those bible classes and stuff was pretty liberal but i know friends from other Methodist churches who it, had, it was not that distinguishable from, from my SBC right. experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they, uh, and I, it sort of depends on the, the, the preacher and they, they rotate sure. the preachers in most places, you know, a preacher only stays for like four years unless mm -hmm. they get some sort of dispensation to stay. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, uh, Absolutely. Um, one of the other things you mentioned that that uh, to sort of talk about is really how um, if there's any sort of healthy way um, to deal with like resentment or anger towards church or Christianity in general, um, and if there's any sort of way to to process that in like a in a way that can eventually be positive. Um, so, what are your sort of thoughts on that and like uh, obviously you you have some experience with this like you've mm -hmm. <laughs> you've you've given I mean, several it, goes at it. it yeah in a sense that's something that i i'm still working on obviously um i think letting go of resentment and letting go of anger is a not a one-time thing you know mm -hmm. like sometimes you drop it and then you pick it back up 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you, you kind of, you let that shit go, but then it jumps back into your hands. And, um, and it's, it's for me, it's been, um, kind of a two steps forward, one step back or one step forward, three steps back kind of process. Right. Um, where, uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, obviously harboring resentments is just like poison and it's not, it's not going to do anything about the situation, you know, because a, it was in the past and B, um, you know, my anger is not going to affect the outcome of anyone else's life other than my own. And so, you know, I have to kind of remind myself of that and just, you know, when, when it occurs, just kind of go, okay, well, I still have some of that. It's still there. Um, you know, try not to wallow in it and just try to kind of, you know, gently let it float on by when I feel it. But I mean, it's such a long process. And the thing is, you know, I have not been involved in a, in a fundamentalist church since I was 15 years old and I'm 45 now. Um, and it's, it's still very hard. It's still very hard for me to look back. I mean, I feel like even not being really a believer anymore or anything like that, um, it's all that stuff is still in there. And it's kind of like, it's kind of a post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, if I go into a church of any denomination, even now I get this kind of queasy feeling and, um, you know, and I feel like that's a, that's a response to trauma. Um, and it's just kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know that I'll ever fully feel comfortable you know, embracing any kind of, any kind of faith, <laughs> uh, fully, because, you know, like I said, it, all of the sausage that I've seen being made has been um, pretty corrupted. It's kind of a, kind of a, uh, up in Sinclair, the jungle type situation, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, it's just, I don't know. I don't know that I have really a solution as far as that stuff goes because I'm just still working on it. But, um, you know, just how pervasive this ideology is and how much, you know, there are still times like I can't watch a devil movie. (laughs) You know, I can't watch a a horror movie dealing with the devil because, you know, that fear is still there, even if I don't believe it rationally. You know, the irrational sort of childhood, you know, part of you that stays with you is still scared of that stuff. Yeah. And um, I know a few weeks ago, um, you know, when when nuclear the nuclear threat seemed fairly imminent and we had that scare in Hawaii or whatever. um, I know uh, Christopher Stroop was um, posting a lot of things about about rapture anxiety. Mm -hmm. And and I remember some people who are obviously still involved in fundamentalist faiths going, well, you just have anxiety because, you know, you're going to hell or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, it's like, that's your rapture anxiety. And, you know, but the thing is, no, that's not it. Um, it's right. just lingering trauma. Yeah. You know, of having seen that movie, A Thief in the Night, which I only recently was able to identify because I had these vague memories of a really scary, like, horror type movie that I was taken to at a very young age, under five, because we were still in Bentonville. And where, you know, some a lady is washing dishes in the kitchen and then she turns around and... And the other person in the room is gone. And, uh, and I used to have recurring nightmares when I was a little kid about waking up in the back seat of my parents' car and seeing no one driving. And, um, you know, that's disorienting when you're a child to have a dream where you wake up in the dream. 
I mean, that's disorienting as an adult, but as a kid, you're just like, what? And so, um, you know, I mean, this stuff is in there. It's deep in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like very recently I was, um, I was watching this show on the CW called Black Lightning, which, by the way, I super recommend. It's great. Oh, I need um, to check it out. I love it's so good. It's I love so the Flash, good. and I usually watch Legends once it hits uh, Netflix, but I haven't watched I, that I, one yet. Well, this is a very different DC show, but and and uh, interestingly enough, Faith and the Church play a, play a pretty big role in it so far. Oh, cool. But, um, but the uh, there was a scene in the most recent episode uh, where a character is sitting in church trying to kind of sort his feelings about something out. And there's a guy standing at the front singing that, um, come thou found of blessings song. Mm -hmm. That one. And, um, you know, I can hear something like that and it just takes me right back. It takes me right back to church. It takes me right back. And, you know, some, so not all those feelings are negative. That's the thing. Um, you know, some of them are positive. And, and it's just, it, you know, or when Christmas comes around and it's not like, you know, the Baptist church is a big Christmas Easter kind of deal, but, um, it seems like those holidays, I always kind of, you know, I always kind of am tempted to go to church and I'm not sure what church that would be, but, you know, and it's just, it's strange that that stuff is in there, even though rationally speaking, like, I just, I can't buy the stuff, you know, I just can't buy it. Right. You know, even as a little kid, I remember thinking about Easter and going, okay, so how is it that this one guy died and that fixes it for everybody ever? Like, how does that work? And like, you know, I mean, I just, I, I, I overthought it, I guess, <laughs> but you know, I just, um, at, at the same time as I, I don't, you know, rationally believe in any of this stuff, it's all still in there. It's all still in there. And so I am freaked out by devil movies and I am, you know, immediately, you know, taken back to my childhood through, um, you know, hearing a song. Right. Yeah. And, and I just, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it's like for somebody who grew up in a moderate faith or no faith, uh, because that's just not my experience. And so I remember when I was a kid, I used to, um, I used to envy kids who, uh, were from more liberal faiths or, or they didn't really go to church. (laughs) Because I just always wondered, you know, what would that be like? What would that be like? And I still don't know, yeah. you know, because I'm someone who is no longer a believer, but who was one, I guess. And, um, or at least was very much immersed in that world. Right. And so, um, it's just, it's just a very strange position to be in. Yeah. It's a very strange, very strange world to live in. Right. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you're, you're, you're definitely right. I, um, a couple of things like come to mind where uh, the first one that that came to mind is like um, Richard Rohr has this state this thing where he says um, for most of human history religion was just geography like mm-hmm. where you were where you were from and the religion that was there was like what you would be <laughs> right but right now, and that's what I was right and then but now it's like now with the proliferation of information and postmodernism like there's a lot more sort of choice involved um so you you can learn about things in a way that you couldn't before mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. absolutely the other thing that that um like one one of my um professors in college would say that like your first the way you were court, sort of brought up was the way in which you 
um, that's like your default vision of the world. And it's, mm -hmm. and the only way for you to sort of modify that is like, uh, he sort of considered as you learn and have more experiences, it's almost like you get corrective lenses, <laughs> mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but, but you, there's not much you can do about your natural vision. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, um, and, and that's, and yeah, sorry, go on. No, 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 I was done. <laughs> well, my my thing is just like even now, you know, I can see in my own thinking where, uh, you know, things like viewing the world as black and white or viewing moral questions as right or wrong. Yeah. It's still very much my default mode. And I and I know that's where that comes from. Right. And yeah. so when, when it happens, you know, I have to kind of question it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that's the thing. It's not like just because I, I don't believe doesn't mean that I don't have, you know, some kind of moral compunction, but it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's something ever. Yeah. That it's, it's just part of being, uh, moving from this fundamentalism to, to something else, you know, mm -hmm. um, whether, yeah, uh, it's, I, yeah, I don't have, a, a, you know, like a, a pat answer besides give yourself a lot of space. What was right. that? What, what's the thing um, that I've heard in some churches? Space and grace. Did you ever hear that phrase? No, no, there is no <laughs> space or grace in, uh, <laughs> in the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, maybe, maybe some version of grace, but definitely no space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to figure it out real fast. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, yeah, I get that. I mean, yeah. and that's, that's more or less my approach. I mean, just, you know, when I find myself, you know, gripped by resentment or I find myself kind of floating back to this time of, of, you know, sitting in church and hearing music and, and, you know, feeling at least some version of comfort from that. Um, I, uh, I just kind of have to, you know, let myself experience that to a certain degree and just be like, okay, I'm feeling really resentful right now. Or, oh, you know, I kind of miss this illusion of, of wholeness that, um, the church cultivated. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean by that. That is something that I do try to do is give myself just the permission to experience those things. Yeah. You know, when, when, when they kind of come up for me. Right. Because you weren't, you weren't really taught to do that. You were no, like you have to, you have to work. Squash all doubt. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that, you know, that is something that is a learned thing, you know, that, that you have to learn to do that. <laughs> absolutely. And absolutely. And I think I'm still learning it. Yeah. 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 And that's, yeah. And that's not, that's not an easy thing. And I, it's commendable that you're doing it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, thank you for, for coming and talking about your experience. This has been very, very fascinating. Um, uh, do you have anywhere online that, that, you, that, that you talk about, about this or anything else that you like to talk about online? I, I don't. I haven't really talked a lot about this online, although you could say that it informs a lot of things. Um, I have a blog uh, that is uh, uncannyvalley.us. And I talk mainly about entertainment <laughs> on there, but sometimes I have some personal essays on there. And I've, n I've not ever done one specifically about my experience with a fundamentalist upbringing, but it comes up in, in other things. Like I've, I've written some about my experience of coming out and, and even experiences of like being a Star Trek fan and, <laughs> and how um, m my experience growing up uh, in that 
faith and in that background colored some of that for me. Hmm. And uh, so, so it certainly does come up. It certainly does permeate a lot of things for me. But I don't know, at some point I'll probably write specifically about this experience because I think it's, it's something worth writing about. Um, but yeah, it's uncannyvalley.us and then I'm at EG Bridges on Twitter. Great. Great. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for, for joining the show and, and sharing your story. Well, it's great talking to you. I hope somebody gets something out of this. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm absolutely sure they will.